Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Jenny, last time I had you in the podcast, you said the first brand that made an impact on you was American Girl. I assume you stand by that answer, but I'd like to ask you now, is there another brand you remember as a young child growing up that had an impact on you? You know, I don't know that I stand by that answer, Jim, if I'm honest. I think I have always regretted that. So I am glad I get a chance to make this right. I think the first brand that had an impact on me, and (laughs) my mom might kill me for saying this, but is McDonald's. My family grew up ski racing in New Hampshire, and we went away just about every weekend in the winter, and we would pretty much only ever do drive throughs on those like really cold, snowy Friday nights. And I just loved it. And I love the partnerships they did with Beanie Babies and Monopoly. And my brothers and I would compete for who got the best one in our Happy Meal. And just like, it was one of those that still brings a smile to my face. And they do such a good job of bringing back that nostalgia to this day. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel. And I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jenny Lewis, the chief marketing officer for The Knot Worldwide, which I was surprised to find has 19 global brands in its portfolio, brands such as The Knot, The Bump, Wedding Wire, The Bash, Hitched, Bodos, How They Asks, and several more. An interesting factoid, The Knot serves 8 out of 10 engaged couples in the U.S., helping them with an all-in-one wedding planning experience. The Knot got its start way back in 1996 as an early digital brand, with seed funding from the internet giant at the time, AOL. The Knot Worldwide now operates across 16 countries with nearly 2,000 employees. My guest, Jenny, is a repeat guest on the CMO podcast. I hosted her on the show in April 2020 when she was head of marketing for Uber and Uber Eats in North America. Jenny left Uber in late 2021 and shortly thereafter joined The Knot Worldwide. Jenny has called 2022 the Super Bowl of Weddings. We'll talk about that and lots more. This is my conversation with the woman whose mission is to help couples navigate and enjoy life's biggest moments. You got to love that. Here's Jenny Lewis. Jenny, welcome back to the CMO podcast. And on this special podcast today, we have three firsts. Can you maybe guess what those three firsts might be? Let's see. 
the first time the Not Worldwide has been on the podcast. Good. The, okay. Yes. You have your first grandchild. We'll talk a bit about that. Our, our first grandchild <laughs> was born yesterday. Yes. Olive Gray Stengel in downtown Detroit. So this is a very special day. And how appropriate I'm speaking to you the day after Absolutely. our first grandchild was born. So we're going to have fun with that. So thrilled for you. I can't the third first. You have a first time CMO? Yeah. Well, actually, we have more than three firsts. Yeah, those were great. Those were <laughs> terrific. Well, this is the first time I've had a return guest oh. to the CMO podcast in a new job. And you were our guest last in April 2020, right mm -hmm. in the beginning of COVID. You were at Uber. And yeah. we, of course, talked a lot back then about the early days of COVID-19. Do you have any fond memories of that podcast? Anything we should reflect upon before we start this one? Honestly, it is such a blur. I was thinking back on it, you know, coming into this, and it's amazing how much has changed. We truly, I think, spoke we, I think we recorded that podcast like the day after I led, left New York when COVID was really That's ramping right. up. And it's just incredible how much has changed between now and then. I've changed jobs. I have moved cities. I've had a baby. I My husband's changed jobs. It's just you know endless. It's incredible how much two years can change. Yeah, you were just married at that time. We were talking yeah. about you renovating a cabin. In mm -hmm. Vermont, and I think you were there at that time because you had moved out of the city and you were painting yep. and scraping and all sorts of things. Yep. You had talked about American Girl dolls being the first brand you remember <laughs> making an impact on you. Yeah. And you, you, when I asked you that in that podcast, who else we should interview? You said Lorraine at Google, and we have done that upon yes. your recommendation, and we did yes. it actually with Marvin Chow, and we had just the greatest discussion. It's one of my favorites. Mm. Wonderful. That is a great one. I The folks over at Google, they sure know what they're doing, don't they? Yeah, they're really good. They're really they good. Are. They really are. So in the, the other first is that this is the first time I have hosted a guest who actually interviewed me in a podcast setting. When you yes. were new in this role, you asked if I would appear virtually with your leadership team as you mm -hmm. were coming together and you were new in the role, new in the job. And you did something really fun. You just interviewed me just like I do in the podcast with a lot of the same kinds of questions, mm -hmm. but, but you had more and you had really good questions. So I'm going to fire some at you of those same questions oh, at the, at the end of the podcast. <laughs> so I'll let you, I'll let you think about that a little bit before, before I put you on the spot. Okay. Sounds good. I'm trying to remember what I asked you now. <laughs> we'll find out. Now, before jumping into this, I have to ask you, you're in, you're in this amazing company with all these brands and you're all about yeah. these great transitions in life. You've had a few since we've talked. Mm -hmm. I've certainly had a big one yesterday being a grandparent for the first time, which is really mind-blowing and so joyous. So what's your advice from what, everything you've learned on your platforms about being a first-time grandparent? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I think there is... It's amazing how much your support system, oftentimes family, grandparents, friends, neighbors, want to help during those mm -hmm. early newborn days. And I think something that we've seen is help means a different thing to everybody. For some, it is showing up with lots of food and camping out and holding the baby. For others, it's space. And mm -hmm giving the, that family time to adjust to what is a absolute shock to the system, as I learned. 
So I think, you know, offering help is so valuable during those early days, but also meeting the couple and family where they are. Do they want a lot of visitors? Do they want alone time? Do they want food or do they just want sleep? (laughs) Um, And really trying to figure out what help means to them. I love that. Yeah, that's a great insight. So I was reading a story about you from this past April, shortly after you started in this role. And you said that 2022 was going to be the Super Bowl of weddings. And we're now well into 2022. And we're recording this as we come out of the summer. So has it been the Super Bowl of weddings? Absolutely. We're still in it, though, I will say. You know, we are... Summer is absolutely wedding season, but it picks up even more in the fall, which is something that I learned upon joining. So we are still in the thick of it. We are in like the fourth quarter. And so (laughs) wedding season is still certainly underway. Um, It's just incredible. You know, there's so much pent up demand in the category coming out of COVID. And there's also, I think, a and you're seeing it in, uh, you know, related industries like travel that are reopening um, coming out of, you know, this, this chapter of COVID and people just want to get together. They want to have experiences. They want to be with friends. They want to see family. They want to dance. They want to have a good time. And so I just love to, I love that I work for a brand that gets to enable people coming together again. Well, my son and daughter-in-law, the couple that just had the baby, they have three weddings in September Oh my gosh! with a newborn. Oh, my gosh. So, so I don't right? I, suspect, I don't know how they're going to do that. <laughs> I, I suspect they'll be relying on your platform for some advice. But but we, we said we're happy to babysit. But my gosh, three weddings when I your baby know. is one month old. That's But that's what that's what you're talking about. They have we had yeah. seven weddings in our family last year. We have a little bit less this year, but a lot, a lot. Yeah. And, and they are yeah. so fun. Everyone is so happy to be together. I know it's it's one of those. It's funny. I've had summers like that. This one's actually a little bit more low key for us in terms of number of weddings. But I've had past years where I've had, I think my max was 12 weddings in one year. Mm -hmm. And you look at me like, oh my gosh, this looks exhausting. And then it's so much fun. You don't regret a second of it. You want to be at every single one. And my dad actually gave me some advice when I was feeling overwhelmed by all the commitments and, you know, the expense that comes with a lot of them. He was like, you know what, Jen, this is a season of life. And when you're my age, you're going to look back on it and wish you were in it again. So he's like, just go to the events, go to the parties, enjoy it. And he was so right. I like your dad. I like him already. (laughs) He's a good guy. (laughs) So beyond the excitement and people want to be back together, uh, anything else that's different right now about weddings and the wedding season? There's some interesting trends that we're seeing just in terms of, you know, of course, I work for a brand for the first time ever. That's a life stage brand. You know, our core our core offering weddings. A lot of people get married and then they exit our category. And, you know, we'll talk about the bump and so on and how we think about extending mm-hmm. their LTV. But um, so we have to keep a real pulse on how our customer is evolving. And so I wouldn't say immediately this summer and this wedding season, things are different, but we're keeping an eye out on Gen Z turned 25 this year. They're entering prime wedding age, so to speak. And the, their relationship with marriage is a bit different than millennials. And so that's something that we're thinking quite a bit about, you know, just as an example, about 20% of them identify as LGBTQ plus. 
many of them are having babies before marriage. So when we talk about the bump, it plays an interesting role moving forward of, you know, is it a, is it an extender of the customer life cycle or is it actually a pre-acquisition tool in some ways if they choose to have babies before marriage? And so it'll be really interesting. And another dynamic that my team has had fun, we just did a deep dive on it during our global marketing all hands last week, is just seeing how the metaverse is impacting marriage and how people mm -hmm. get married. People are sending virtual invites. Uh, people are touring venues virtually. People are trying on dresses virtually. And it'll be quite interesting to see how that evolves as, as we continue to understand more about that platform. So many companies are being affected by Gen Z, as you said, turning in their mm -hmm. 20s and becoming the, you know, the dominant force in the economy. Mm -hmm. What's your learning or what's your advice or what are your tips for getting your organization ready for that? I mean, it's going to ma massively impact your, your brands, your company, but whether or not you're in alcoholic beverages or consumer products or mm -hmm. automobiles mm -hmm. or travel services, it's going to be, a, I think, a really interesting transition for so many companies. How are you thinking about getting ready for that with your team? It's a good question. You know, and it sounds kind of simplistic, but I think number one, and the stage that I am in right now is educate. And so I think bringing the customer into the fold becomes that much more important. The further and further your executive team gets away from being the customer themselves, the more and more yep. important it becomes to bring research and bring customers into the decision-making process. So I think leading with the customer, making sure that they are at the forefront of a lot of your decision-making so that you, you acknowledge what you don't know. Which leads me to, I think, the second point of not being afraid to admit when you don't know something. I didn't know anything about the metaverse until, you know, a year ago, maybe. And being humble in saying, you know what, this is not my area of expertise. I need to learn. Who can I find that knows a lot more than I do? And they might be somebody really junior in your organization, but not being shy about asking them for tips and tricks and to bring you into this new space. And so I think, you know, having that humility, tossing your ego aside and bringing in the experts to educate, I think can help you prepare and just bring in that mindset shift and start infusing that internally. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. There's an amazing stat about your company, about The Knot, not your company, about one of your brands, The Knot. Eight yeah. out of 10 engaged couples are on that platform. That is amazing. It's pretty cool, huh? It's huge. <laughs> it's a giant market share. I'd like you, and you've, you've now been with the company, you know, what, about seven, eight months? Four. Four, four months. It's only four months. Yeah, okay. I know. Well, you're know. still in your early days and we'll talk about your onboarding in a moment, but what, what lessons have you learned about how this company has built such a force to have eight out of 10 engaged couples on the platform? What's been the playbook? Yeah. What are the lessons? Every marketer would love to have a brand of that 
importance. I mean, when you're that size, mm. you're sort of indispensable, right? Which is what every brand would love to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's incredible. And I think there has been, we are in a space that people are very confused and people and get engaged and they don't know what to do next. And I think what the knot has done very successfully historically is surface a very robust content strategy that can help guide couples through that process. And that has been a tentpole of our marketing strategy historically is a heavy content marketing agenda and ensuring that we are answering those questions. We are giving you the information that you need when you need it. We are helping ease that stress and that fear. We have this, um, there's a huge amount of FOMU is what we call it, fear of messing up in the wedding industry. Mm. Uh, it's this huge decision. It's this huge expense. For some, it's the biggest expense they've made to date. And you want it to be perfect. It's one day in time. And so with that kind of stress and anxiety, our content has served as a safe haven in some ways for asking the questions, getting answers, giving you a little bit of peace of mind. So I think that has if I if I think critically in, of early insights of what has led us to where we are today, I would say investing heavily in content and expertise and being that trusted resource has, has allowed for us to differentiate our brands. So this idea of providing information, uh, consumers are confused, a little bit scared. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you've been really, really good at being there for them with the right information at the right time to help them through this and to help them have one of the greatest experiences of their life. What does that say about this organization? I mean, it sounds like empathy, uh, agility, consumer closeness. So what insights do you have for others who would like to build an organization that, that do stay that in touch with the people who are important for them, their customers, and are able to adapt and become this important in their lives? I think, you know, that is something I have been blown away by at this organization is the level of empathy that leadership displays to employees, to customers, to wedding professionals who use our platform to market their services. And so I do think empathy is at the core of a lot of this and um, really using that to light the way. And it's something I am really trying to infuse within my team to even supercharge more than we do today to bring that customer perspective to the forefront. And to our earlier point, it becomes that much more important when we, if we aren't in that prime category of, mm -hmm. and within our demographic. So, but I do think, I think you put it well there with, I think empathy and really leading with that customer first mindset and lens and understanding not just what they want, but who they are and what mindset they're in and how we can provide that reassurance. Let's go back to the spring of 2022 when you decided to join The Knot Worldwide after leaving mm -hmm. Uber in late 2021 and doing some advisory work for Instacart and the financial yep. services platform, Claire. Tell us about that time. What compelled you to join this organization? You were dabbling a bit in advisory consulting work. Were you thinking that that could be a direction for you? And just take us back to how you made this decision at that time that was right for you and your family. You know, I, I was thinking I would take some more time off, honestly. And I was really enjoying the advisory work. 
I loved getting to kind of satellite into companies for short periods of time and help out and, you know, learn new problems and new people. And it was a really nice work-life balance for me. I was setting some boundaries. I had a, at that point, seven or eight month old. So I was full-time momming on the side, but I just needed that time to just reset a bit. And I, it was very in my nature to just jump back into something after Uber. And I could feel that, that drive and that kind of ambition, that restlessness uh, to just jump into something. But I very intentionally decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give myself at least three months to just live in this space, live in this season of life, as my dad would say, and just enjoy it a bit, you know, be with my son spend more time with family, do some of this advisory work. But I kept the hours pretty limited. And I had just come out of, you know, an incredible seven and a half year run at Uber. And I know we talked about this on our last podcast, but when I joined the company, you know, we were under 900 employees. When I left, we were close to 30,000. And just almost the whiplash of that period of time in my life of growing that business was incredible. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I needed to decompress a little bit too. So I, I really tried to be intentional about taking that time. And I spoke to a few mentors and friends and so forth. And one of them, uh, Nikki Newberger, who you should add to your list to speak to, the chief brand officer okay. at Lululemon. Um, she's amazing. And I, um, she gave me advice to kind of write out my checklist of like, what are my, my must-haves? And what are the things that are like nice to have? And what are the things I really don't want? And so I started, and it wasn't like sitting down in one go and writing it out. It was like, as I thought of something, I would put it in a note in my iPhone. And I started accumulating this list. And as I spoke to hiring managers and recruiters, I was pretty easily able to sift through, you know what, this one just doesn't check enough of the boxes. I think it's time for me to move on. And when the Not Worldwide reached out, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't thinking I would end up in this industry. And I wasn't sure what to make of it. But I spoke to the, the CEO, Tim, and he's a wonderful guy. And immediately we just clicked. So I kept the conversation going. And the more I spoke to them, I started looking back at my checklist and it checked so many of the boxes. It was undeniable. And the big ones for me, which I'm sure will be your follow up question. It will be. You know me. (laughs) (laughs) What's Um, on that must have list? That must have list. So for me, it was uh, people. I am a very people first leader. Uh, Anybody who's worked with me has probably heard me say that a million times before. It's why I'm in this industry. It's why I love what I do. I love working with people. I love working on behalf of people through our customers. And so I wanted to find a team that was really strong, thoughtful, shared similar values, and very supportive of one another. The second was finding an industry that sparked joy. I think I was just I really enjoyed working on consumer-facing brands. I enjoy working on things that I understand, that are fun to me, that I engage with, and that I find just bring happiness to the world, as crass as that might sound. And what is happier than weddings and babies? And so I instantly, just as I was chatting with the team, found myself smiling and just leaving, feeling a little bit lighter and a little bit more energized. And so I had to listen to that that feeling. 
And then I would say the third was the business opportunity. You know, we are in a um, about a hundred billion dollar industry and we have barely scratched the surface. And that is something to your earlier point on, you know, how how well penetrated we are within couples. It just got my wheels turning about, wow, if they're already doing this well and there's still so much more headroom for growth, imagine the things that we can do together. And I am fortunate to have entered the company after they're coming out of a series of mergers and acquisitions to bring together a few different brands, Wedding Wire, The Knot, Bodas in our international markets, Hitched in the UK. And um, I'm coming in at kind of the sweet spot of, you know, we're in a time of transformation. And that was really exciting to me for just how I could help write this next chapter. How did you approach the onboarding? What, what's you, you came into this company, you've been a long time at Uber, you took a few months you know, to do something else, you reset, you put your list together, this, this nailed your list. Tell us about your first few months in the job, which is where you are right now. How did you approach it? What was your strategy? What were your priorities? How did you spend your time? Yeah. Gosh, Jim, it was, you know, after being at the same company for so long, it is weird starting a new job. (laughs) Um, it, really, you know, was a kind of another shock to the system. And, um, but I think for me, it came back to, I know at this stage in my career, I know how important relationships are, uh, both to my own personal satisfaction and enjoyment of my job, as well as to the success uh, that I will have in role. So prioritizing time with my team, prioritizing time with core stakeholders, with customers and understanding their perspective. That is really how I spent most of my early days at the company was making as much time for those one-on-one touch points for office hours for all hands as I possibly could. The other, and this is something that I I really take from my Uber days, Uber had a, a really strong discipline around ensuring that there was, especially earlier in, a really strong business acumen and they really understood Mm -hmm. the business that they had built and the you know how we were thinking about our strategy and where where our orientation was in terms of growth versus profitability and so forth and so the other in addition to people was really spending time to learn the business because great marketing strategies can only be built out of great business strategies so and I can only be able to speak with fluency and earn credibility if I understand what we're building here and I understand some of the financials and some of the, the strategy that's gotten us to where we are in that history. So I really spent time digging in and understanding as much about the business as I possibly could. How did you do that? How did you understand the business? I mean, I think I agree with you totally and great CMOs do that. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're changing industries. But Jenny, how did you do that? What was your personal strategy for that? So I think it was, you know, really spending time with certain stakeholders like our CFO, our CPO, some folks on our strategy team and getting them to walk me through in probably more depth than they were expecting uh, some of what their priorities were, some of, you know, an overview of their businesses and their last MBR or something like that. I also I, I kind of wrote down my list of like, what are the metrics I need to know? And I made sure that I had those top of mind as I was going into different conversations and just like kind of cross-referencing, okay, like, do I have a good handle on ROAS and, you know, how, how we're thinking about ROAS and do I have a good handle on what our revenue targets are for this year? And really making sure that I, I kind of had my ducks in a row, so to speak. 
So I think making your list of like, what are the metrics I need to know to be effective in this role? And if you don't have them, it's pretty easy to find them. Uh, There are some that were harder to find than others and some that frankly like didn't exist. And now I'm going back to the drawing board and hopefully going to be able to bring and drive impact there. But, um, But just assembling your list. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What was your remit coming in and has it shifted in the several months you've been there? I mean, this has been a pretty dramatic several months since you started on many fronts, you know, with the things we have going on in macroeconomics and still socially, uh, the global situation with war still going on. So your remit coming in and has it shifted at all since you've been there? My remit coming in, I would say, was somewhat open-ended. And I think that was intentional from our CEO of he really gave me a fairly long leash coming in to learn the business, learn the team and almost tell him Mm -hmm. what my remit should be. So in many ways, I'm just crafting that right now. You know, I'm, I, I actually had a, we had a board meeting about two weeks ago and I did my first marketing deep dive with the board and it was a good force function for just getting my head straight on what have I learned and starting to plot it all together into a narrative and think through, okay, with this, you know, where do we need to go in the next year? Where do we need to go in the next three years? But the remit is kind of at the bare minimum, just to think about how the suite of brands that is really new in coming together. Uh, They just merged in 2019, COVID hit, that, you know, sent the wedding industry into a tailspin. And we're just kind of getting our footing again. And so I think, you know, at, it, at its most basic is just getting a handle on this, this house of brands. How do we think about that brand strategy? How do we think about how our brand architecture expresses that? How do we think about how they should evolve into the future to meet new customer needs? And how do I design an organization that supports that? And that was one of my early focus areas was I could just tell when I came in, And I heard so much of it during office hours. Again, since I prioritized spending so much time with the team, I got a pretty easy, pretty quick pulse that the way we were working just wasn't working. (laughs) And, um, and so I'm a, I'm a huge, huge believer in, um, great teams do great work. And if I, if I see that, then I just, it's my impulse to kind of dive in and think about from an organizational strategy standpoint, how can we how can we reposition? How can we help people um, work better and smarter together? So one of my earliest initiatives was launching a, a light restructure of our team just to break down some silos, mm-hmm. be clear around how, how we can tap into each of our teams, what I call them superpowers, uh, to do great marketing. And it's been quite effective thus far. We I just got my first culture survey scores back and we were able to grow employee engagement, kind of our, our hero metric for culture by five percentage points already. Um, so great to see that it's already having a pretty immediate impact. You're off to a great start, Jenny. Well done. Thanks. When we spoke last, you talked about one of your priorities was to 
find your North Star as a company and to work on the brand architecture, which you just referenced. I just wanted mm-hmm. to want to understand how did you know that was a priority? What were the signs of the signals coming in? Yeah, I think some of the biggest signals were as I asked people, as I was doing a bit of my listening tour on onboarding was everybody had a different answer about what our brand stood for. And everybody had a different answer about what our different, what the distinction was between our different brands. So there was just an obvious misalignment. And then I would say the, one of the other big signals was looking at some of the customer insights, honestly, and starting to see our brand, you know, some of our brand health metrics, they're quite strong within our core customer today. But as we look ahead and we look around the corner, you know, dynamics are changing and the industry is changing. And so I think those two pieces of this bit of like an internal identity crisis, so to speak, as well as starting to see some of the the trends for our brand externally really led to a case for change of Mm -hmm. we need to start thinking critically around who we are and most importantly, where we're going. I know it's early days, but what have you learned in the early days on that journey? I think I have learned people have a lot of heart for our brands. They are at the core of some of the most important milestones in their life. They have often very emotional connections to our brands. They have a lot of trust in who we are and what we put forward, the content we put forward. They most engage couples in the U.S. in particular, but even internationally, when I dig into some of our brand health data internationally, they know who we are. You know, our awareness numbers are quite high, but probably one of my biggest insights is, but they don't know what we do. And I've been hanging my hat a bit on that around the organization lately. People know who we are, but they don't know what we do. Mm -hmm. And what I'm getting at there is, We offer, and this is something I frankly learned as I came in and I was interviewing for the role and doing my own research was I didn't really know the breadth of services and offerings and the technology that is behind a lot of what I knew of the knot and wedding wire. And it it has a huge value add to our customers and you can see it in some of our NPS numbers, but we haven't done a great job of frankly, like product marketing historically, and that's still a relatively new function for us. So that's an area for us to invest in is just how do we start to bring some of kind of, we we have a lot of the emotion, we have a lot of the inspiration. It's an excellent starting point. My God, I would kill, many brands would kill for that. But how do we bring some of the function forward a little bit? And how do we get people to understand the services that we offer that can help them bring all of that inspiration to life? You do business in a lot of countries. I think it's like 16, you know, something like 19 mm-hmm. brands. As you said, this has all been put mm-hmm. together over the last several years. How do you decide where you spend your time? I hear this from many of my guests. I just had yeah. Pam Forbes from Pernod Ricard on. She talked an awful lot about their portfolio and how she decides where to focus and how they allocate resources and the model they use for that. Very, very smart, but all, anyone in a multi-brand company right? Has to make that choice and you either do it explicitly mm-hmm. or implicitly. So how do you choose where you should spend your time, your focus as the CMO? Yeah. I, I need to listen to her podcast. It's a good one. By the way. It's a very good one. Um, I'm sure I can learn a lot because I, frankly, I'm still learning. And I think it is something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately as I am, um, 
as I'm starting to get my footing a bit more and trying to be much more intentional about Mm -hmm. where and how I spend my time. I have let my calendar get the best of me, if I'm honest, these past few weeks. And I think that can happen as you are new to an organization and just want to say yes to absolutely everything and everyone. But I think I I actually just last week had a sit down with our CEO, my boss, and um, walked him through my scorecard, for lack of better words, for Mm -hmm. the back half of the year. And I'm going to, and I, you can hold me to this next time we talk, um, I'm going to really try and anchor myself back to that scorecard. And I, I needed it, frankly, because I was finding myself spending time in places I probably shouldn't be. So I think being really clear and really principled about this is what I need to get done and how do I look at my calendar, my inbox, and make sure everything that I'm doing supports that and acknowledge that you can't boil the ocean, you can't get everything done in you know, H2 of this year. So what is foundational? And that's really how I built my goals was what do I need to do during the back half of this year to get myself ready for 2023? What are some of the engines I need to get in place? What are some of the tools that we need? What are some of the strategies we need to lock in so that I can set myself and my team up for the future? It actually a great example of that was um, our org redesign and getting our, our team humming and getting them working like a true team is table stakes to any great marketing strategy. And um, so that was one of those foundational efforts. So I'm very focused on the foundation right now. I love the idea of taking your scorecard and working backwards from that, right? On how you spend your time, where you're going to focus. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a very simple idea, but I think we sometimes lose sight of that. All the best ideas are the simple ones. Yeah, they are. <laughs> so true. Tell us about how this role, I know it's early, but how it's similar and different from your head of marketing role for North America at Uber? You know, um, it is similar in that we are, we consider ourselves a marketplace business here as well, too. We partner with a, you know, thousands of wedding professionals, photographers, hair and makeup artists, venues, you know, all, all of the, the sort um, to pair them with couples for their wedding day. So, it's amazing how different the industries are, but how similar the marketplace dynamics are between Uber and TKWW. Yeah, finding that balance, thinking about what type of relationship we want to have with our wedding professionals and how we can enable their success. Uh, what are some of the pain points they have? There's a lot of similarities there. And so I've been surprised, honestly, at how much I could apply my marketplace mm-hmm. background here. So I would say that's a similarity. I would say the level of ambition. Uber, one of the things that attracted me to it was just it felt like the sort of culture that skies the limit, throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks. And there was a huge amount of innovation and ambition, particularly during some of the earlier days. And I feel that here right now. And it's interesting because we're not a new brand. We're not a startup. But there is we're at this kind of renaissance period and, um, you know, redefining who we are and figuring out what this next chapter is going to look like in this newly formed company. And so that's really exciting for me. There's some similarities culturally there. I think um, the difference is I'm working with a much smaller media budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That is an adjustment. You know, I've been there. I've done that. It's been a few years, but um 
So that has honestly been really fun in some ways of we have to be that much more creative and that much more diligent in where and how we're spending all of our dollars. Uh, not that we weren't at Uber. Of course, we were there too. Um, but it was just different, different scale. And um, so it's not as simple as, you know, having a really robust multi hundred million dollar media plan. It's, you know, getting much savvier. So that's been that's been fun and challenging all the same. and you know, different, and this sounds so obvious, but different is I, I had built up a lot of trust at Uber and I'd been there for a long time. I had earned my stripes and it's different coming into an organization. And I am still proving that here, which is great. I wanted that. I wanted to be kept on my toes a little bit. You don't want to get too comfortable. How are you building trust in the new organization? And credibility. Yeah, I think it comes down to practicing what you preach. You know, it's really easy for leaders uh, to come in and say a lot of great things. Uh, it's harder for them to have follow through on that. So I am very focused right now on operational excellence is what I'm calling it and just having follow through. I can't talk for the next year about how we need better marketing measurement and not do anything to help get us there. Um, you know, I need to practice what I preach a little bit. So I think that helps earn trust when people know that they can take your word and believe it and run with it. So that's definitely a focus of mine is just having that follow through. And then the other, I think, is spending time with people, really listening, understanding where they're coming from, letting them understand where you're coming from, being honest and transparent, not trying to hide or, you know, trying to put on a show, but just being genuine in who you are. I want to come back to the marketplace business area that you referenced a few moments ago. And I'm, I'm going to quote you here because I think it's a lovely quote. You said, it takes a unique marketer to truly understand the dynamics of developing strategies for marketplace businesses. I would like you to say a bit more about that and how that mm -hmm. impacts how you recruit, how you train, mm -hmm. how you develop people. It's a pretty strong quote. It is where I think it takes a unique marketer is it is very easy and you'd be amazed actually at how easy it is to forget about the other audience when you're focused on one to just get so focused on the consumer experience that in this case, you know, the wedding professional experience just falls by the wayside and you're just only focused on that. So having training your brain to be thinking that well-rounded of, okay, if I make this decision, if I send that email or I launch this campaign, how will a wedding professional read that? What will they think? And how will that feel to them? So I think it's building that muscle a little bit and it's just getting you know, honestly, getting kind of the experience under your belt of like seeing it go wrong a few times, probably, because I've certainly been there. But I would say, you know, in terms of recruiting and training the team is looking for those instincts, looking for people that have that holistic experience of both customers or in some cases, like on Uber Eats, where we were speaking to three customers because we had restaurants, couriers and eaters um, and how they think about acknowledging that and kind of looking and probing for that. I would say it also takes, it comes back to empathy, Jim, mm -hmm. <laughs> having a bit of empathy. And oftentimes, you know, and I, I don't think I fully appreciate, I'll give an example at Uber. And I think we spoke about this during uh, our last interview. We had a program that incentivized all employees to uh, take on different customer experiences, whether it be sitting in the customer support center or being an Uber Eats courier or a driver. And 
I honestly don't think I fully appreciated the driver experience until I, I was one and I did a few trips. And so I think looking for marketers who have that degree of empathy that they really want to get in there and understand the experience of that side of their marketplace, even if that's not who they are, that's not their background, or that's not, you know, been their experience or that that's not their demo. We talked about your career path quite a bit in the last podcast, so I'm not really going to go there. But I, I do want you to talk a bit about the time you took between Uber and joining the Not Worldwide. You did some advisory work. You've already talked about that. But what did you learn about yourself in that reset? What was reaffirmed? What ahas did you, did you discover or rediscover? So tell us a bit about that experience for you. Because I think too many times we don't take that time between career changes, life changes in our, in our, I talk to a lot of people who don't take that time and they, sometimes they regret not having thought more carefully about the move they took. Mm. You, and you obviously thought very carefully, you made your list. So tell us a bit more about what you learned in that time period. Yeah, I think I learned that I am not my job. I am not my career. And there is kind of a bit of a phenomenon with folks I, that I've observed that especially when you start at a company that is like an Uber that can be so all encompassing. And it, I joined when it was still in sort of small startup mode, it almost became my identity. Mm-hmm. I, my husband, when he first met me, had me in his phone as Jenny Uber. <laughs> that's how <laughs> yeah, we remember it. All. Exactly. It just became so much a part of who I was and how I, you know, would see friends or family that I hadn't seen in years. And first thing they'd ask about was how was Uber? And it became so much a part of me and who I am that it became that much scarier for me to leave. And so I think disconnecting from my career for a little bit and remembering like I am a person without that side of me was really healthy, honestly, for just reorienting back to my values and what's important to me and my self-worth and um, remembering that my career is something that is supposed to be additive to who I am and, and, you know, ideally something I really enjoy because I'm stepping away from my family to spend time doing it. And so looking for something that is just going to make me more me, but not replace who I am entirely. I love that, Jenny. When I left PNG, I called about 60 people the day it was announced that were important for me. That's a lot of people, but that's what it was. And one person said to me when I phoned, it was Dan Wyden at Wyden Kennedy, and he said, you can't leave. He said, you can't. You, you are PNG. And yeah. I thought, you know, that's a reason I'm leaving. Yeah. I, I totally yep. get where you are. It was so, so much a part of my oh, identity. I'm sure you went through that. Yeah. 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 So Absolutely. I think it's a really, really important point. Now, I want to move to the creative brief. And as I said up front, you interviewed me a few months back, and I'm going to take those questions and turn them to you. Oh, gosh. So it's, it's I should my... have looked back on these, Jim. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> oh, they were so good. They were so good. So here we go. And the first one is, where was your wedding? My wedding was in, at Basin Harbor Club in Virgins, Vermont, on Lake Champlain. And it was the best weekend of my life. Did you use the knot? I did. I did there use the knot for my wedding website. I know. I looked back. I had to be sure I was accurate. So I sure did. What song was your first dance? You're Just Too Good to Be True. Oh, very yeah. sweet. Very sweet. Yeah, your it's a fa- fun one. 
your favorite CMO, I know you're a listener of this podcast, your favorite CMO podcast episodes. Oh my gosh. Um, there's a lot. These are all the things you ask me, Jenny. I know. I know. Um, you know what? I'm going to have to give a, a, sh- a shout out to um, to my dear friend, Laura Jones from Instacart, who yeah. you just spoke to recently. I yeah. really enjoyed it's a great episode. Listening to her, listening to her wisdom, I always do, and we we worked at Uber together for a number of years, and just I have immense respect for what she's building over there. What are some of your other favorite podcasts? I have been listening to a lot of like fun podcasts mm. lately. I have a um, my guilty pleasure is reality TV, so I really enjoy yeah. Bravo and the the Housewives universe. So I have a few Bravo podcasts that I like to listen to when I want to really tune out. I love smartless the podcast with um jason bateman sean hayes mm-hmm. and will arnett yeah i've yep. uh, been listening to a lot of those episodes recently and um that's always a good way to pass the time there's a few I, i've listened i listened to Brene brown's podcast quite a bit but she i don't know if you saw jen but she's taking the summer off so she hasn't put any episodes out recently mm-hmm. which is amazing and she gave her whole company the summer off she's very disciplined and intentional about her time it's mm-hmm. been one of her strengths for many years yeah Brands that you admire these days? So many. Um, one of the brands that I probably admire most and use as a bit of a kind of hallmark for some of what I hope to instill is Airbnb. I think they're an example of a marketplace business that gets it right. You know, they certainly have opportunities. We all do. But I think they are one that does such a good job of kind of land, they've landed their purpose so beautifully. And then it cascades through the app, through their experience, through their corporate comms. And just it, you can tell they really believe it and they feel it. I had their CMO on the show a few months ago, Hiroki Asai. It's a great episode. I saw it's been on my tremendous. You should listen. Tremendous lessons about setting up an organization. So I think it would be really helpful for you to listen to that. I think at this point in your tenure. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely will. Some CMOs or leaders that you admire? CMOs that I admire. Rebecca Messina, who was uh, the CMO at Uber for a relatively brief period of time, but she's one that I've always admired and tried to emulate in my leadership style in some ways. She was at Coca-Cola for Mm -hmm. 20 something years and um, then Beam Suntory and um, just hugely empathetic leader, like really values vulnerability really brings that out in her teams. And um, so always have admired that. I have, I admire, it's funny, you think back on kind of the people that, it's a lot of folks that I've had the pleasure of kind of crossing paths with over my career. Um, Kellen Kenny, who was at Uber for uh, num- for not not a huge run of time, but then left and went over to Hilton and then AT&T. And she is just an incredibly kind of, pragmatic, thoughtful leader. If you haven't had Kellen on yet, you should definitely Mm -hmm. reach out and very like data driven, but very customer focused and just can really command a room in an incredible way. Uh, Nikki Neuberger, who I mentioned, CBO at Lululemon, just such a dynamic, fun, real human being kind of marketing leader, uh, just really kick ass. And, um, so a lot of people that I ran into at Uber, you know, it's a lot of the folks that I was fortunate enough to have crossed paths with. Most influential business mentor in your life? I would have to say um, there's a woman, she actually was not in marketing. She was in operations. Her name's Megan Joyce. And she was a our, um, RGM for US and Canada for a number of years, Boston-based as well, too. And she was one of the 
kind of early leaders at Uber that just, I think, saw something in me and kind of gave me like that shoulder tap. And I remember she said something to me. It's funny the things looking back and I was, you know, a marketing manager at the time. So I was still fairly junior. And she said to me, like, do you want to be a GM one day? Do you want to be a general manager? And I just remember being like, oh my God, she thinks I can do that. Like She thinks I can, I'm capable of that. And just, she believed in me and like really wanted me to think at that level. And it gave me a huge amount of confidence and made me want to impress her, frankly, too, and made me want to prove her right. Wow. it's a great story. Most inspiring person in your life? My brother. I, um, I have two old, I'm the youngest of, uh, I have two older brothers. Um, and they've been very formative in making me who I am today. As you can imagine, (laughs) growing up with two older brothers will teach you a lot of things. Um, but my oldest brother, Jeff is just a ray of sunshine. Um, just one of the most kind hearted people you will ever meet. And there's, I, I don't think there's a person that meets Jeff that doesn't walk away with a smile on their face. He's one of those. And, um, He's an entrepreneur himself and just a, like really, we just have so much fun brainstorming ideas. And if I call him with a problem I'm facing at work, he will just probably talk my ear off for two hours with a million different ideas and want to brainstorm and think it through and just leaves you with this feeling of energy. So he's just always been such a good sounding board for me. You have a busy life. What are, what are your rituals of staying close to your family? in this busy mm-hmm. life. You, you know, your brother is hugely inspiring for you. I, I've had my own to stay close to my family over a crazy career, but what I would yeah. be curious in some of yours. We, um, my family is quite good, you know, and we, we are a bit spread out now. Um, but we always come together for the 4th of July back at my childhood home. That is tradition. We have yet to miss it. And it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as we all have more kids. Um, I ended up on an air mattress this time. I got the short straw being the youngest. Um, it's a good sign the air mattresses are out, right? Everyone comes home. Exactly. Exactly. A full house. And um, so that's important in Christmas. We do together as well, too. Um, and I, I think it would be I would be shocked if either of those fell off our, our family calendars. So those are kind of intentional moments that we always try and come together as a family. But I think it's the little things. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, FaceTiming my nieces. It's, yeah. um, you know, sending little gifts and care packages when you think of them here and there, trying to make it for birthdays when you can. It's not always possible, but um, really trying to just make time for family. It's so easy to push it aside and take for granted. but. You, as you kind of get older, you just learn it's everything. The best thing that's happened to you since our last podcast in April 2020. This is the easiest answer ever, Jim. I had my son. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, bringing Jack into the world. He has just been such a blessing. I, have, um, I was saying to my husband recently, he just turned one in June. And... Um, it's been so much fun. Like people talk a lot about, I mean, parenthood is hard and it is a big adjustment. And I was never the girl who grew up wanting, you know, dreaming about the day that I would become a mother. I dreamed about my career. Mm -hmm. That was me. And that should probably not surprise you. And, um, so being, I knew I wanted a family, but I never really thought about being a mom and my God, it has been fun. It has been like such a surprising delight and just made my life so much richer. 
what counsel do you have to my son and daughter-in-law who are a year behind you and are a dual career couple <sighs> yep. living yep. in a major city without family around, right? Their families yep. are not in Detroit. Oh gosh, those early days are tough. Um, I think it is, somebody said something to me that I think really helped, which was everything is a phase. So when it feels like it's never going to end, particularly during those like first eight weeks when there's very little sleep and, you know, the whole thing, um, remembering like this is not forever. Eventually this child will sleep. <laughs> we all learned it at some point. Um, so remember everything's a phase. I think really trying to be present when you're there, you know, not it's you know, especially at that young age. And right now, like he's not talking back to me, really. You know, he's not, we're not engaging in conversation. So it'd be pretty easy to sit there and like scroll through email mm -hmm. or, you know, get back on Slack. But I really try and be present with my son when we're together. And um, I just feel like I get so much more out of it by being intentional about that. Jenny, I love the last podcast we did. I love this one even more. So yeah. thank you. Likewise. <laughs> well, we had lots of news this podcast, right? I know. But thank you for coming back on and thank you for your generosity of spirit and congratulations on a fast startup. And, and I, I wish you the best to your team, to your family. And thank you again for returning to the podcast for such an inspiring chat. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun and I will gladly come back anytime you ask. That was my conversation with Jenny Lewis. There were lots of life lessons in this one, but here are three things to think about for your brand, business, and life. And the first one, the importance of curiosity and always learning as a mindset. Jenny is wonderful at that. When she came into the new job at The Knot Worldwide, she wanted to understand how the business worked. And she really wanted to understand how they made money and what were the drivers. And she went to visit lots of people with lots of questions. She's doing the same to better understand Gen Z and the metaverse and its impact on the brands at the Knot Worldwide. Second takeaway, how to think about a break between jobs. Jenny left Uber after being there seven and a half years. It was very much part of her identity. She took time to make a list of what she wanted to do next in her life, the must-haves, the nice-to-haves. She spent reflective time. She talked to friends. She talked to her family. And when she decided to join the Knot Worldwide, it was with great intention and great energy, having taken the time to think about what she wanted in her career and her life. And third takeaway, and it's a tactical one, Jenny takes her scorecard as a CMO, her personal scorecard, and looks at what she needs to be accountable for and responsible for, aligns that with her CEO, and works backward from that on how she decides to spend her time and where she needs to focus. It's a fundamental tip, but an important one. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.